to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed and Todd Matina. We talk about what happened in 2020 and what that tells us about the future of economics and the financial markets. We specifically look at fiscal and monetary stimulus, trade balances, and what's top of mind for both Dustin and Todd. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to have two guests today. Dustin Reed, who is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist, and Todd Matina, our Lead and Chief Economist. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Um, the end of the year and uh, generally brings a lot of predictions. It's, it marks a, a new start, and we see a lot of people looking at 2021 predictions. Um, and what I'd like to do is a little bit of a different take on that, which is to more look at 2020, understand what has happened in 2020, and what that might mean for future business cycles. 2020 was obviously a year that was primarily characterized by uh, COVID-19, but all of the different ramifications of, uh, of COVID-19 will have a profound impact going forward. Maybe I'll start with the first question to you, Todd. Uh, when I think of, uh, of COVID-19 and you think of some of the impacts that it's had, uh, stimulus in many different forms, both fiscal, monetary, uh, came, came to grips in 2020. What do you expect uh, this means for the future of, of stimulus, the future of fighting recessions, uh, and in general, the impact that this will have going forward? Yeah, thanks. And uh, again, real pleasure to be uh, be part of the podcast with with you and Dustin. Uh, and thanks for everyone who's tuning in to listen. You know, you know, fiscal policy really turned out to be a huge lifeline in 2020 with the uh, great lockdown and the in the pandemic related downturn. Everything from extending EI benefits, uh, both their duration and and the benefit amounts, direct tax rebates, and small business loans and grants, and a host of other type of fiscal policy measures that really provided direct and rapid relief to so many different people in the economy, households and businesses alike. And when I think going forward, I I feel like this is going to have an important legacy in terms of people looking looking towards fiscal policy as having a more active role in stabilization uh, going forward. And and I I would really, I think about that in two broad ways or two broad categories. And the, and the first one was would be what I would call macro stabilization, which is like really smoothing out the business cycle. And the second would be all the host of other concerns that seem to be of growing interest uh, today, all the important social and political issues, everything ranging from climate uh, fighting climate change to growing income and wealth inequalities. So I think on many levels, there's going to be more demands on an active fiscal policy than maybe what we've seen historically. Um, the one thing to keep in mind, I guess the one concern is at the same time as all of that, governments are going to have to be very mindful about the health of their balance sheets, You know, avoiding an over-leveraged public sector with very high debt levels, particularly as we enter the next three decades where we can expect you know, a lot of age-related spending pressures on healthcare, on pensions, on old age security, and, uh, and many other things. So I feel like, um, like this is going to be sort of one of the defining uh, changes in the next, let's call it decade or so. 
it's important to think about this too, like uh, in terms of the role fiscal policy can play. Like um, I'm sure Dustin will have lots to, to, to say on this regard too, but you know, Larry Summers, the former uh, treasury secretary in the U S and, and Harvard prof is well known for, for saying that, you know, in previous recessions, central banks have cut interest rates, their policy interest rate by 400 to 500 basis points to try to um, provide that stimulus for a recovery. That's just not possible now when we have policy interest rates in most major countries sitting around zero. Um, and we have a host of other tools, but you know, arguably they're just not as effective as an old fashioned rate cut. Um, I, I think they still have a lot of uh, efficiency and effectiveness, but it's just probably not going to be the same. And this, uh, it's also worth highlighting that you know, monetary policy can operate with a lag 12 to 18 months before a decision right. impacts the real economy. Whereas fiscal decisions and fiscal stabilizers put a floor under demand straight away, you know, providing income relief, um, you know, like un unemployment insurance, for example, can provide un unemployment benefits straight away. So I think this is really going to shape the future. That's great. Um, just, just to stick with you, Todd, on, on a follow-up. Uh, so, Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, fiscal that's come to power this year. Um, you know, you could you could say, and, and you're saying that going forward, you'd expect it to to continue. Um, you could see that this recession is a bit unique. Um, I, I think of uh, recessions and bull markets as a bit of uh, Anna Karenian. Uh, you know, uh, all good families are the same, but every bad family or miserable family is miserable in their own way. Recessions seem like they're a little bit like that. Um, with a pandemic-led recession, the government saying to people, you cannot go to work, uh, you could argue that the burden for them to support their citizens are, it is much higher than a future recession. Uh, do you think that will be the case and that we'll see less fiscal? Or do you think that now that the die is cast, uh, citizens are going to demand more? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, this is a very unique uh, recession in the sense that there was no fundamental a trigger for it. Like we like past, you know, normal business cycles. It wasn't as if we had a financial crisis or if there was some kind of asset bubble that blew up and caused a, a def deflating demand. This was really, you know, everything was running smooth. It's hard to remember back to late 2019, but late 2019 right. made a synchronized rebound. Interest rates around the world were falling. Manufacturing activity was picking up. Brexit was sort of off the off the table. The China-U.S. trade conflict was easing. It was a really positive and great time. And then suddenly the pandemic came along. And um, by government order, really, for social distancing, we had these restrictions that slowed economic activity. So it was always a bit of a, a different kind of recession. Um, you know, one that was, um, I don't want to say man-made, but one that was by, by fiat, by restriction. We had to slow economic activity for public health reasons. So once we have this medical solution with these vaccines, you know, similarly, we can, uh, many economists thought it would just open up very abruptly and have a very kind of V-shaped rebound. So to your question, you know, are we, can we expect, you know, maybe people will see this as some uh, exceptional period and the fiscal response, which was truly exceptional, you know, deficits uh, in the neighborhood in Canada and the U.S. deficits in the neighborhood of 18, 19 percent of GDP, completely unheard of in peacetime. Um, you know, will people continue to expect that kind of action going forward? I don't think we're going to anyone would expect to see those kinds of deficits going forward. But I do think people are going to expect after the 2008 financial crisis and the very gradual recovery from that, they're going to expect after the great lockdown and the severe 
uh, unemployment response that came out of that. And then now we've seen the response of governments can be very effective and very rapid. I do feel like there's going to be an expectation that governments are more proactive uh, and responsive, not responsive, but proactive, you know, seeing the cycle, seeing where things are heading and, and being more active. The hard part is designing a fiscal policy that is counter cyclical, that can fight the fight the the recession, rather than one that's delayed, sluggish, and slow, and just ends up amplifying the cycle, making it even more pro cyclical, even amplifying that boom bust cycle. So that'll be the challenge. Great, uh, Dustin. Maybe to turn to you on uh, on a different form of stimulus, which is monetary, uh, and what the central bankers around the world have have been doing. Um, I think since the great financial crisis, uh, central bankers have been particularly active. Uh, Todd referenced in his earlier comment, even in uh, Q419, which was a rosy picture um, and, and certainly seems particularly rosy now looking back on it, uh, central bankers were, were cutting in that particular environment. What do you expect central bankers uh, of major economies to do sort of going forward? Uh, will they keep that sort of level of support, that goal of full employment, or is this something that they'll have to revert uh, at some point in time? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And uh, I just want to echo, uh, great to be here and uh, always a pleasure to be with you and uh, and Todd uh, doing these events. Um, you know, I think, you know, in the G3 space, so, you know, Fed, ECB, and Bank of Japan, um, you know, we're going to continue to see a lot of... Um, Easy money for for a prolonged period of time here. I don't think I don't think these central banks are going anywhere um, anywhere fast. That said, I think we're getting at least from a pure rates perspective. You know, the key policy rate, whether it's you know minus point one or you know minus ten basis points in Japan, you know, or the minus fifty basis points in Europe, or you know, effectively trending towards zero in the U.S. You know, we're there, and I think that the central banks would say that you know we are there. Like, this is it for us. Maybe we can tweak a little bit more on the margin, but we, you know, we've seen a huge, you know, pass the ball attempt anyway, since March, April, May by the central banks over, uh, you know, over to the government side, over to the fiscal side, which, you know, Todd, you know, Todd's gone through really, really well earlier in this, uh, in this podcast. Um, so I think it's tough from a, you know, the key policy rate perspective to expect much more. Uh, and as Todd alluded to, you know, there are other things that central banks can do. The toolbox is large, um, but, you know, we've been using those tools in that toolkit for a long period of time, too. And, you know, the ECB was pumping via, via quantitative easing program well before the, the virus hit um, and has been doing so for years, uh, buying sovereign and corporate bonds within the European space. Japan, I think, is right around its five-year anniversary of its yield curve control program, having hoovered up a lot of its own debt, the JGB, uh, Japanese government bonds. Um, you know, the Fed essentially restarted the uh, the QE program. Um, you know, with the you know with the, the the COVID situation, so that's that's slightly different. But you know, I think most central banks, and when you see it in speeches or press conferences, or, you know, I, I think of Powell particularly in front of uh, the semi-annual uh, testimony uh, in front of Congress, you know, leaning on the government, pushing on the government, I would even say literally, you know, begging the government, look, like, we're very close to there. We can always do more, um, but it's really over to you. It's really, the, it's really the fiscal side. And that's something on the fixed income team, 
we're very, very focused on the on fiscal as a driver for markets for 2021. It's uh, and particularly the U.S. leading globally, but it's it's a particular theme for us into how markets will trade, risk assets will trade, um, you know that sort of thing. And it's definitely a key theme and a key a key driver. So I think we're going to continue to see central banks say, "Look, we're not going anywhere. We have a mandate. Um, we're going to keep." providing liquidity until we hit our, you know, our, our own mandates. And those mandates are slightly different. The ECB mandate slightly different than the Fed and the ECB and some of the other, you know, maybe G7, G8 central banks. So they're not going anywhere. They're not going to wrap it up. But at the same time, at every turn that they get, they're going to say, you know, over to you, you know, let's, let's get more, let's get more fiscal in the pipeline. Um. And I guess both for from a fiscal and monetary perspective, is the only constraint on how much governments are able to do um, one of inflation, one of political will? What what are the constraints um, on either the monetary or fiscal side? Uh, I'll, I'll stick with you, Dustin, uh, for this, and then maybe we can turn to Todd for his comments. Yeah, for sure. So. You know, on the fiscal side, um, there's, you know, there are constraints, obviously. The electorate, the electorate counts in terms of, you know, how much is able to get pushed through. Um, you know, we've seen Germany for years with, uh, you know, the quote unquote black zero, which they've, you know, right. which they've called it. Um, you know, and that's, I don't think it's been a law, but I think it's been essentially kind of the, the working mandate by, uh, I wouldn't even say just the government, but also the electorate. Like, this is how we run our books. And, you know they've obviously you know changed that in the last in the last uh, eight uh, eight to ten months or so, um, you know. But those you know those kind of constraints that are long entrenched. You know you have these long entrenched views in Germany, not willing to deficit spend. You know it's been maybe a bit of a drag on Europe European growth. Uh, you know in previous cycles, maybe that changes going forward. Maybe they maybe maybe that that will be more. You know that that uh, that elector will be more more interested in, in making those changes, uh, and especially as the electorate changes, maybe away from the you know classical uh, CSU CDU um, partnership and more towards right. you know the Greens who, who get more. So you know, and in the U.S., you know, you see, you know, you're already seeing massive pushback on the 1.9 trillion um, Biden plan that uh, you know has been announced that that he's kind of starting with as an opening salvo. Um, you know, by various Republicans and 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 deficit hawks. Um, you know, and and you've seen, uh, and even though you've seen the Republicans um, under four years of Trump increase the deficit by seven trillion, uh, which is massive by any stretch and much more than um, under any previous uh, administration. So it really kind of depends. I think you know, I don't think inflation necessarily, unless you've got massive inflation that's you know out of control, but kind of. Inflation numbers that we talk about, kind of, you know, just around zero, slightly below zero to two, three, four percent. I don't think that precludes anybody from from doing that. I think for me, kind of the real the real uh, you know bottlenecks are going to be electorate, government. Uh, do you have control of your own fiscal, uh, you know, your own monetary situation, those sorts of things. Great, uh, Todd. Maybe I'll turn to you and uh, amend that question just slightly. Uh, given your your time at the IMF, you worked with uh, countries all around the world. Um, number one, do you agree with Dustin's assessment on the constraints being largely uh, political? Uh, and two, what what types of signs do you look for 
for countries that are starting to get over their skis uh, and either a fiscal or monetary uh, point of view. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with what Dustin was saying. And, you know, I worked at the International Monetary Fund for about 10 years. And in you know, my last post when I was there was um, in, the, in the fiscal group. So a big part of my role was traveling to different countries, talking about their fiscal policy, their debt levels, and how to keep them sustainable. You know, at the IMF, we often joke that IMF stands for it's mostly fiscal. And uh, <laughs> because almost every country we would have to visit um, and when, where there was a crisis, where they were coming to the IMF in need of financial arrangements, the root cause nine times out of 10 was in the fiscal sector. And it was because of runaway budget deficits that were being financed by central banks, or it was just big budget deficits that were unsustainable, leading to unsustainable debt problems, uh, fiscal promises like public pensions that were clearly not affordable, that could, uh, they were actually sometimes a good leading indicator of fiscal crises. So I, I'm actually a big believer that even though the focus over a business cycle is often on monetary policy in terms of how interest rates are adjusted and how uh, different monetary decisions are made, that it's these more longer term fiscal policy decisions that can really stand out as being so important. You know, I, um, I went back to the IMF in 2010, right around the time of the European debt crisis. And part of that was because I was so intrigued. I was like, well, can you imagine Europe, uh, you know, this incredibly advanced economy, best practice in so many ways, having a debt crisis? That was just seemed unfathomable when I was in the fund in the early 2000s, you know, when we were dealing with um, mainly frontier markets, emerging markets, low income countries. And then suddenly the Eurozone was coming to us. And that was an incredible thing. Um, I never thought we would see that again. And here we are in 2020 with equally problematic issues. And um, it's unbelievable to see. So, but yeah, my, my I guess my, to your question, my IMF definitely kind of changes my perspective on things and really puts a big spotlight on fiscal policy and long, like, and especially how fiscal policy can impact the long term and, and, and lead to these sort of slow burning crises. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, you've seen countries with debt levels of 40 or 50% of GDP that run into a debt crisis. And you see countries like Japan that have a gross total government debt of 250% of GDP and have absolutely no problems and some of the lowest interest rates in the world. So there's so much nuance. Every country is just a little bit different and their circumstances are a bit different. And that's, um, that's also an important lesson to take away. You know, Argentina and Japan are obviously not comparable. So they, Argentina can't get away with the same level of public debt as Japan for so many reasons. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I think that's important. You know, one thing going back to the constraints on debt or, or on fiscal policy, I mean, just quickly, I would say, you know, just kind of the mechanics of debt sustainability, you know, we look at whether the interest rate is, is higher than the growth rate. So, you know, the so-called R minus G. And if governments are getting away in an environment where the, where the interest rate after inflation is lower than the growth rate in the economy, it's almost a free lunch because in the long run, as long as you don't borrow too much, the debt is self-correcting with a debt ratio as a percent of GDP starts to naturally fall over time. And you can see that, like if you look at post-World War II, a lot of countries had huge debt ratios as a share of GDP that steadily fell, uh, largely because of growth. So one question I would have is, right, we're in a world right now where 
interest rates are just incredibly, they're at generation lows. If that is a sustained um, situation where those interest rates stay lower for longer and, and lower than growth rates in the economy, then a lot of this one-time surge in borrowing um, will sort of over time self-correct and we'll get lower GDP ratios or debt to GDP ratios over time. The concern is just how long. So I think mechanically that's right. But then I think there's also a second constraint, which is if you, there's, it's not like there's a free lunch where you can jack up the, the public debt to arbitrarily high levels and the market will take it. So we know that at some level it becomes unsustainable and sovereign interest rates will rise. So there's this kind of constraint in what investors will fund. And I think smaller economies like Canada are going to be facing those constraints much more rapidly than some of the big reserve currency countries like the U.S. or in the Eurozone. The last thing I would just quickly say is um, there are proponents, and we hear a lot about this nowadays on modern monetary theory, MMT, which subscribes that you know, we can use active fiscal policy just as long as inflation is under control. And I guess, you know, to some extent that's true, except it also ignores that even if the debt is coming down over time and inflation stays low, if the government is gobbling up all the credit in the economy, there it's not a free lunch. Like all that credit could have been go- going to dynamic, uh, high growth kind of companies that would have been the future Facebooks, the future you know, fangs of the world, these things. So there are opportunity costs. There are real costs uh, to running very high debt levels. So. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, Maybe we'll turn now to, to trade. Uh, And I I think that trade and politics probably have to go hand in hand uh, in some ways. So uh, uh, your, your comment of 2019, where we saw trade tensions soften somewhat between the U S and China, clearly that came after a fair amount of tension between U.S. and China, and there doesn't seem like there's a uh, appetite from the Biden administration to fully reverse that. Maybe be a little bit more predictable, but but still um, have a uh, focus on China. Um, what do you think the impact to, to supply chains has been, both of the pre-COVID-19 level uh, um, economy and then also given COVID uh, and given the, uh, the nationalization of some uh, secure uh, products like masks and other uh, health products? Uh, what do you think the long-term impact of supply chains would be, Todd? Yeah, so, you know, Global trade was growing faster than global real GDP growth for decades. And many economists saw trade, the trade channel, as one of the, uh, and as being a key benefit of globalization. It sort of propelled growth and and helped convergence and living standards around the world converge. We've certainly seen that in China over the last several decades. We're seeing it in other emerging countries. Trade has been a really important part of, of the global growth story. And global supply chains has been a big part of that growth in global trade. Um, you know, China's uh, and, and many other countries in Asia Pacific are highly integrated in global supply chains, uh, as we know. And we saw that play out. Uh, to, you know, for many decades, that was a huge benefit to consumers in advanced economies that benefited from just-in-time delivery inventory systems, lower prices. It improved standard of livings, and it was a, a, a good trade. But in 2020, during the pandemic, as you were saying, I mean, we saw the limits or the downside of globalization in a sense, and that countries hoarded the available supplies uh, during a medical public health crisis 
And suddenly we realized that we didn't have the supplies um, that we wanted at a critical time. And that's led to these kind of calls, I guess, for bringing production back onshore to, you know, serve domestic markets, not just in healthcare, but if you listen to Trump and, and that agenda, just manufacturing in general, bringing back those manufacturing jobs to, to North America. My, my view is that, you know, the gains from trade are just too enormous to make that a realistic strategy. Like Canada, as an example, is just far too small of a market that if we were to produce goods, manufactured goods, uh, medical goods, just to serve our own market, the costs would likely be very high and, and would hurt. It'd be a very regressive policy. It would hurt the people who can least afford it in a way. So I think what we're likely to see, because I think politically people will not be happy to see that outcome either. I think what we're likely to see is not globalization disappear or roll back, but maybe a shift in globalization so that rather than offshoring production to faraway markets uh, that might be the most optimal in terms of minimizing cost, we might see the more offshoring to say Mexico for North American production. And we might see in Europe more offshoring to more regional uh, hubs closer to the European market, say in the in the Middle East, North Africa, Eastern Europe, more of that type of offshoring. Um, so globalization, I don't think will disappear. We might see more regionalization, if I can call it that, um, you know, which will help maintain efficiency in terms of large production runs, keep costs low for, for, for consumers, but also by bringing production closer to home, maybe reassure people that, um, you know, that there'll be a little bit more certainty in production, uh, uh, you know, for the next crisis. Uh, so I kind of, I kind of see that as being the future uh, in terms of globalization. And that's going to be a long drawn out process because these value chains have been built up over many, many long years. Uh, so I don't think they, I don't think these things change overnight. Thanks Todd. And, and um, you know, as a result of, of that outlook, uh, maybe two follow-up questions. And Dustin, maybe I'll go to you first, and, and Todd, you can chime in after. But um, first, you were really referring to, it sounded like, uh, physical manufacturing. Manufacturing widgets, shipping them around the world. Um, internet and uh, the information technology world, obviously a very global uh, space you're starting to see uh, rising tensions between some of the tech firms uh, that are domiciled in China versus those domiciled in the West. Dustin, do you think that we're going to end up with a, a polarized sort of information technology, e-commerce, sort of digital uh, industries uh, to a China-led East and, and a U.S. or even EU-led West? And if so, what implications would that have on sort of global economy and, and, uh, and the like? That's an excellent question. I think uh, I think the world is at a really interesting um, inflection point on that question. I think, depending on how the Biden administration decides to handle China and how China, you know, decides to handle the Biden administration, frankly, and they decide to get along, I think is going to go a long way in answering that. I think that um, the Trump administration, clearly with its policies. You know, whether you agree with them or whether you don't, I think that, you know, the, the relationship between the U.S. and China, just to kind of, you know, East versus West, um, broadly speaking, I think, you know, really change really changed the, the tone of, of the discussion. And I think the discussion would be, would have been very, very different under 
uh, you know, a Hillary president, a Clinton presidency versus a, a Trump presidency. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just yeah. saying I, I think it probably is, uh, or at least would have been. And now we're on the cusp of a, a, a Biden presidency. And I think that, you know, it, what, what we're seeing from, you know, initial stages is that a lot of the people that were involved in the Obama administration are going to be involved in the Biden administration. And I think that's interesting and important because, you know, I think the world's changed a little bit, probably because of the last four years and the way global policy and international diplomacy has been conducted uh, or not conducted, depending on how you want to look at it. And, um, you know, you, you have this, you have this action. Um, you know, <clears throat> I, I think that, you know, I, I, there seems to be very, very uh, active, strong uh, impetus in within China to create, build, network, foster, however you want to say it, uh, its own um, its own tech industry, its own computer chip industry, um, uh, you know, and the like. And I think that, at least for me, and, and I'm definitely not a pro at you know trying to, you know, understand exactly what's happening in in terms of um, you know, the Chinese intellectual space within the text, within, within the tech space. But um, I get the impression that this administration in China is not willing to move back or move away from that. And you could see that, I think, a little bit with the negotiations going on between, um, you know, the U.S. trade office and, uh, and the, the Chinese uh, counterpart during the Trump administration, you know, uh, trying to, you know, the, the 2025 initiative that China had in place. And there was very, at least my understanding was there was very little backing down on moving away from those goals around technology and achieving certain abilities um, from an, from an independent perspective. And um, so that to me says that that trajectory isn't going anywhere. And that to me, to kind of get back to your question, suggests that we could see a bifurcation in terms of what, uh, you know, the technology you know, uh, implications and, and applications and usages are um, east versus west. Uh, and it could be a, a greater divide, I think, maybe, you know, five years from now versus, uh, you know, versus where we are today. But again, I think how, you know, the Biden administration decides to, um, you know, um, uh, talk to China and how China wants to talk back and, and how they want to interact with each other, I think is going to go a long way. So it's an interesting question. And and definitely an inflection point. I mean, generally speaking, you know, I think you know, from a global GDP perspective, to get to kind of the second half of your question, I think that citizens, broadly speaking, would be better, better, better off with kind of a one, a one global uh, type technology and, and, and user interface and all those types of uh, and all those types of platforms. Um, when you have Things that are fractured, uh, particularly in later stages. Not that technology is later stage, but it's definitely not in the infant stage in many ways. Um, sure. I don't think that that's going to necessarily um, have the most uh, economic efficiency uh, for global citizens as it, as it would have as, as, if if everyone was kind of you know using off use, going off more one type of platform. So it'll be very interesting to see. I think how that um, develops over the next four years. It, it's it's definitely. It's definitely something to keep an eye on. Thanks, Dustin. Um, maybe a last question for, for both of you. Um, we've talked a lot about stimulus. We've talked a bit about trade. Um, 
of the things, the plethora of things that we haven't touched, um, Todd, what are you looking towards uh, that will most profoundly impact sort of your medium or longer term uh, economic view? Oh, that's a great question. And, um, you know, if I had to point to one thing that is really going to be um, the driver of the long-term outlook, it's going to be what happens to inflation? Um, mm-hmm. Because I feel like we've had 10 plus years of very subdued inflationary pressure. We've had a 40 year um, secular decline in average inflation, and that's helped bring down long-term interest rates. It's uh, interest rates after inflation, real interest rates have declined very sharply. And we just know from sort of basic asset pricing, lower real interest rates implies through the present value relationships, higher asset valuations for things like stock markets and uh, has important implications for which equity styles, you know, growth versus value and so on will outperform. So the reason I bring it back to inflation is higher inflation could be a turning point in terms of higher interest rates. Um, and, um, you know, if we're seeing those higher rates and higher inflation come about through a big fiscal expansion, like we've been talking about, you could see higher interest rates after inflation, higher real interest rates. My baseline view is that's not what we're going to see. I don't expect to see a big, sh- a sharp interest rate in inflation, uh, interest rates, uh, in real interest rates in the coming 10 years, uh, which are going to, uh, which is good news for investors. Cause I think that's going to keep, um, sort of a, a, upward pressure on asset valuations. But it is, sort of, for me, the big indicator that I want to keep an eye on. I wouldn't be surprised to see short bouts of inflation in later 2021 as we have this uh, kind of uh, vaccine and stimulus-driven rebound towards the end of 2021. But looking beyond that, like next five, 10 years, I still think we go back to the secular downward trends that downward trajectory and inflation and long-term rates is is my best guess. And I think that's good news for other asset prices. Great. Dustin, same question for you, but harder because Todd took the inflation answer off the table for you. So what else are you looking at? I've done a lot of these and and I know, I know he's very focused on the inflation side and, and rightly so. I think, you know, from my answer, I would say, um, so, I'll spec out the medium term kind of in the next two to three years. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, not to borrow someone else's terminology, but the scarring in the labor market, I think, and how that, and how that goes from here is going to be, is going to be very key. I think, um, you know, we've talked about kind of the Nike swoosh idea since, uh, since March of last year. And we're definitely in the swoosh part of that reaction function. And, you know, we're seeing job gains, you know, slower and slower across many, you know, many economies, not only, not only, um, large economies, but also, but also emerging economies. And, you know, where are are those jobs going to come back? And if they're not going to come back, you know, or, or, you know, if they're not going to come back right away, how long are they going to take to come back? And, you know, where's the slack in the economy? And then do people retrain and where do those jobs, you know, go to, um, so, you know, that there's a, there's an inflation kind of derivative uh, in, in, you know, embedded in, in kind of the questions that I'm, I'm asking in terms of, you know, what to keep an eye on going forward. Cause you know, my general belief is unless, unless we can get back to par or at least close to par on the labor market, it's going to be tough to get material sustained lasting. So inflation is definitely, you know, kind of a part of a part of that answer. And then kind of wrapped into that as well. 
and, and not to kind of throw everything at the at the wall, but um, you know, as part of the retraining for a lot of people who might find themselves kind of structurally displaced out of the labor market, uh, you know, for a while. And by that, I mean quarters or even years. Do you get kind of retrained more along the technology and, and green space, the climate and green, you know, initiatives and kind of pulling into the, you know, our topic from earlier in the conversation around fiscal? Because clearly there's going to be a lot of money available by governments to, you know, retrain yourself um, and retrain your skill set uh, for more green technology associated, you know, type, type employment. And I think that, I don't know if I want to call it a structural shift or a cyclical shift. It's probably a bit of both. That shift in the coming two or three years, I think will be very, very interesting to see how well economies adapt and take the fiscal and apply it to what is going to probably be scarring in the labor market for a long period of time. And because you're going to see economies uh, essentially uh, short uh, in terms of their 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 output levels, how the labor market actually um, retrains and retools uh, itself to move towards kind of the next iteration in um, you know in work, whether that's you know work from home or work otherwise. But that that retraining for skill set, I think, is very interesting in terms of the ability to kind of get back to par and then monetary can kind of take over again, assuming inflation is, you know, uh, continues to be a, an important driver for, you know, for rates and, and um, central banks and, and obviously uh, various market outlooks. Dustin, Todd, thank you so much for your time, your insights. This was excellent. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for having us. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 